Yeah. Life can be complicated. Relationships can be complicated. We're in a series, a four-part series. This is our last installment, so if you missed any of the previous installments, you can go on our website and check them out. This is our last installment of our Relationship Status series. Um, I hope it's been useful to you. I hope it's been practical for you, and it's helped give you some, some tools to help you in your relationship, or if you're not in a relationship, help give you some tools to understand uh, how to not be in a relationship and how to be okay with that for right now. Um, so, yeah, so, so uh, we, we'll close it out today, and then next week we're starting a series called Who is Jesus? And it's a whole five-week series leading up to Easter, uh, just talking about who, who is he? Like, there are a lot of people that have a lot of opinions and a lot of ideas about him. Who is he? So we're going to be exploring that for the next five weeks. Today, I want to start off in this sermon just a little different than I normally do. I want to start by giving you the conclusion of the sermon so that in case you decide you just want to bail out of here early, you've at least got the conclusion of the sermon. I'm going to give you the thesis statement, the big idea that I want to try to illuminate um, and refine throughout the sermon. And, And here it is. Here's the big idea of the sermon. When we surrender our relationships to God, God honors that commitment in generous and surprising ways. Man, I thought I was going to get like, amen, brother. But everybody's like, let's just see where this goes, right? When we surrender our relationships to God, God honors that commitment in generous and surprising ways. Any of you guys have an iPhone? Anybody have an iPhone? There's a lot of iPhone users. Looks like mostly towards the front. Is it Android in the back and then iPhone towards? It's interesting. Um, I have an iPhone. And over the last several weeks, I've been having a lot of problems with my iPhone. It's not been functioning according to its purpose, okay? I've had, had like, the little home button. There's a little button that you can push, and it brings you back to the home screen, and then you can get to all your apps. And that button's not working. So if I'm texting somebody, then I can't stop texting. It just stays on the text. And then I have to, like, turn off the phone and turn it back on. It's a huge annoyance. It is a huge annoyance. And then it stopped taking a charge. So I'm, like, it would actually take the charge, but then it would pretend that it didn't take the charge. So I would charge it up to 100, and then it would tick down to about 80, and then I'd be on a call, and it would just drop. It would just drop. Like, there was nothing you could do. So I started trying to kind of come up with my own fixes and patches, and I found that there was this thing called assistive touch, and assistive touch is this thing that's way more, you, you, way more than you'll ever need to know or it will be useful to you, but I'm just going to tell you. Assistive touch is this little thing that you can do, and it sort of imports a mock home button, so you can push it, and it's on the screen, and it makes it come back to your home page, so I, I got that thing fixed, right, but then the charge part, I'm like, man, this is tough, because then I had to keep it charged in just to be able to talk on the phone. So I'd be like at a restaurant or at a coffee shop, and I've got it plugged in. I had to take my charger with me everywhere. So now I'm like talking to people like this, you know, char- plugged into the, or I'm in my car like, hey, how's it going? You know, and I'm like, I was having all these problems. And then if I forgot my charger, then I'd have to borrow somebody's charger. So I'd be at, you know, out in public, and I'd be like, excuse me, I see you have an iPhone. Do you happen to have a charger? Can I borrow your I was becoming like a public nuisance because of the problems with my phone. And then one day, I'm expressing all the frustration to my wife, and I'm saying, man, this phone, you know, I've had it for like a year and a half. My, co- my contract is not up. Like, I can't get the new phone without paying a whole bunch of money. And you know, I'm just like kind of moaning and groaning. 
And Rebecca says, I have an idea. Why don't you take your iPhone to the Mac store? Because (laughs) maybe it was that obvious. I just didn't. And that didn't occur to me. She's like, they're the ones that made it. They could probably fix it. And I'm like, I thought she actually just wanted an excuse to go to the Galleria Mall. So I'm like, no, you know, um, I'll just work with it. And she's like, no, seriously, they designed it. They manufactured it. They probably know what's wrong with it. Why don't you take it there? I said, you know what? That's a good idea. Go to the Mac store. I walk in. The guy says, okay, you got to go sit at the Genius Bar. I go over to the Genius Bar. This genius comes over. His name's Brian. And he looks at the phone. He, like, punches it around for a couple seconds. About five seconds later, he goes, oh, yeah, this phone is defective. We'll go ahead and replace that for you. Just hang on right here. Like that. Like, in two seconds... I went from having a phone that had been causing me to almost lose my Holy Ghost, okay, a few times, to a phone that worked perfectly. Like the new, and it was a new phone. And it wasn't like it was, I'd only had it 30 days. It was a brand new phone that I had, and, and, and I had had my old phone like a year and a half, right? In relationships, a lot of times we try to patch up and we try to jerry-rig, and we try to fix this, and we try to do this and make shortcuts here and make shortcuts there and figure out ways to get our relationship status figured out when really if we would take our relationship and take our life to the one who designed and manufactured us, he would be able to say, yeah, I can fix this like right now. And in fact, not just patch you up, make you new. The, the declaration, the promise of the scripture is that when you come to Christ, you become a new creation. That's what the scripture, that's when, where you get this phrase born anew or born again, whatever you know, terminology you want to use. The idea is that when you give your heart and your life to Christ, you are created into a new thing. It's a new you. It's not the same thing. Now, you may still occasionally act like the old you because that is still hanging around a little bit, but you're a new you, right? But, but to surrender, right? So I surrendered my phone to the manufacturer. They gave me a new phone. We surrender our life to God, and he will give us a new life. And in our relationships, it will make us new in our relationship. But that kind of a surrender is a big commitment, and it seems like a big step, and we think, well, I don't know what will happen if I surrender. I don't, you know, I'm a little nervous about that. And so a lot of times in life, see if any of these relate to you, a lot of times in life, we try to do things our own way. And here's how we try to deal with our relationships. One thing we do is that we deny. We deny that there's a problem, right? We just act like there's no problem. Everything's cool. My grandpa used to drive us around. My grandpa Rome, my cousin knows this, and he would never admit that he was lost when you're in the car. So you're driving along, and it's like, man, this is not where we're supposed to be going. And here's what he would do. He would pull up to some random building, and he'd be like, boys, I just wanted you to see this building. Isn't that a beauty? (laughs) Okay, we're going to go back this way now. We're like, what? Have you ever been around a couple that is in having a problem in their relationship, but they're in denial. Like, they will not admit it to you. I would rather have a couple that were like, man, we are struggling. Uh, this guy is driving me crazy. She's driving me nuts. I would rather have that than be around a couple who is pretending like there's no problem when you know there is a problem. Because there are a lot of awkward silences when you're around a couple like that. 
And there are a lot, there's a lot of nervous laughter. Have you ever, you know, they're like, <laughs> and then, you know, you're going, man, this is really awkward. Why don't you guys just come out and say this? So that's one way we deal with it. Another way that we deal with our relationships is we dominate, right? We try to control. We try to manipulate the uncertainty of the relationship. We don't know how it's going to work out. And so we say, all right, look, this is, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do it my way. We're just going to do it this way, period. And we do it like that in our deep voice. This is how we're going to do it, honey. Right? That doesn't work, guys. does not work. Trust me. I've tried that way. It's not good. Uh, a third way that we try to manage the chaos and the uncertainty of our relationship is that we deceive. Right? So we're not able to work it out between each other. And so we try to sneak a little bit around behind, maybe in our thought life, maybe in our friendships with somebody else, maybe on our life on the Internet. You know, we learn that there's a, a clear history button on the computer so that she doesn't know or he doesn't know what images or what websites we visited. You guys are acting like, what? There's a clear history? Yeah. Right? We, we try to deceive, right? And, and, and we think that everything's cool, but underneath we're eroding a relationship. We're eroding the relationship with our spouse because we're not being honest and we're not being sincere. We're not being clear. Another thing that we do is we duplicate. And what that means is we just repeat old patterns. You ever been in a relationship or in a situation you're like, man, this is like deja vu. I mean, we're do- this is exactly like the last time. This is exactly like the way I interacted with uh, the previous relationship that I had. Or this is exactly the way that, you know, I, this is exactly the kind of relationship I had with my mom or with my dad or somebody else. It's like, how do I keep doing this? Keep repeating these old patterns, right? And if none of this stuff is working, we may just despair. We're like, you know what? I, I just cannot... I don't know what to do. Throw up my hands. Roll my eyes. I'm just like, look, we're just going to, I'm not going to leave the relationship, but I just, I'm done. I'm done. I'm checking out. I'm physically here, but I'm spiritually somewhere else. I'm not, I'm not part of it. I don't know what else to do, right? I've lost hope. I have no more courage. I have no more strength for this relationship. I'm emotionally tapped. There's nothing left, right? And then the last thing that we do is we depart. Sometimes we get to a point in a relationship where it's like, you know what, I'm going to just heli-vac out of here, man. I am gone. I'm pulling the cord, and I'm gone. And maybe it'll be better somewhere else, somehow else, some other way, but it's just not going to work for me here, right? These are the ways that we struggle through relationships. And what I believe the Bible is trying to teach us is that there is a better way, there is a better way to negotiate these relationships, to enter into these relationships, to participate in these relationships when we surrender our hearts to God. Rather than trying to patch it up on our own ways when we surrender our hearts and our relationships and our lives to God. And today I'm going to explore with you the story of a love story between a man named Boaz and a woman named Ruth. And if you were here last week, um, you were introduced to the first part of the story. We got to meet Ruth and Naomi, and we got to meet Boaz, and we got to meet some of Boaz's relatives, and um, it was a great, um, like three people know, know what I'm talking about, but it was, it was a great, great opportunity to meet the characters in the story. But here's the, the Boaz and Ruth story, I think, provides for us a template. It's an example of what happens 
what it means when you surrender your relationship status to God. Okay? It gives us an example of what that means, and it also gives us an example of what results when we surrender our relationship status to God. Now, surrender your relationship may sound like Christianese, and you may be like, you know what, I don't, I don't even know what that means. We're going to dive into it. We're going to explore it here in this story. So let me back up and give you the beginning part of the story. If you remember, uh, in this story, the story starts off with the death of of a woman named Ruth's husband. Her husband dies at the beginning of the story. So it starts off immediately with grief. And not only did her husband die, but her brother-in-law died. Um, uh, Her husband's brother died. And so her friend Orpah, who was a good friend of hers, her husband died, right? And then Naomi, Naomi is the mother-in-law of Ruth and Orpah. We learned that earlier in the story, her husband had died. So the story of Ruth opens with three women grieving over the death and devastation of their relationships with their husbands. And not only are they carrying this grief and this heartbreak and this remorse, but we're in the first century, you know, Near East, and so they're also completely impoverished. At that time and in that location and in that region, women were not able to own property, so they were not only not only brokenhearted, but they were broke, uh, and they didn't know what to do. And, and, and in the story, Orpah, the, the one daughter-in-law, says, I'm going back to my mom and dad. You know, I'm still young. She'd been married, you know, maybe 10 years or so. And so she's going back, and she's going to live with her mom and dad, and maybe she'll meet another husband, right? And Ruth says to Naomi, she says, I'm staying with you. Naomi, you're, you're, you know, you're getting older. You're all alone. You're in a foreign country. They were in this country called Moab, whereas Ruth, uh, Naomi was originally from Israel. She said, I'm staying with you. And there's that beautiful passage uh, that you sometimes hear in weddings where Ruth says to Naomi, she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. I'm sticking with you. So Ruth and Naomi start walking back from Moab, which is this country to to the far east and south of Judah, where Naomi's from. She's from Bethlehem. And they travel all the way back up to Bethlehem together. These two women, totally alone, no protection, no property, nothing, right? So they walk up there. They get to Bethlehem. Some of the people in Bethlehem remember Naomi. Uh, It it, it appears that maybe somebody took them in for a little bit. And uh, Ruth immediately goes out in the field, and she starts working in the field. She starts gleaning the barley from behind the the harvesters in a field that's owned by a guy named Boaz, okay? And Boaz is this older guy. He's wealthy. He's a bachelor. He's a landowner. He's a prominent member of the community, and he owns this field, and he has harvesters, and they go harvest this field, and Ruth comes behind the harvesters, and if any of the harvesters drop grain, um, you know, they, they drop it out of the bag, or they forget to get it, or they don't trim the edge of their field, then she gets to go, and she gets that. So she's basically, like, you know, it's like somebody who's picking up recycled cans, right? And they're getting them, and they're going to turn them in. It's, it's sort of like a, a way that she can get a little bit of money together to take care of, of the two of them. Um, so she's out there in the field by herself. She's a poor woman. She's from a foreign country. And Boaz, the owner, comes to his field, and he goes, who is that woman out there? I, I recognize this. I, I don't recognize this woman out here. Who is that? And they say, oh, this is, this is Ruth. She's a Moabite. Right, and she came back here with Naomi, you know, and they lost. She lost her husband, and so forth. So Boaz goes out to Ruth in in the field, 
and she's out there working in the field, and the, the landowner comes out. you got to imagine the dynamic. You know, she's not even an employee. She's just picking up the scraps, and he's the owner of the field. And he comes out, and here's what he says to her. He says, my daughter, listen to me. He said, don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. He said, I've told the men in, in, in my employ to not lay a hand on you, and I'm, I'm going to protect you, okay? And whenever you are thirsty, you just go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Make yourself comfortable here in my property. He said, I've been told about all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the day of, um, of your husband's death. Um, and then he said, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz is being like a really upstanding guy here, right? He's a little bit older. He calls her daughter. He's saying, hey, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. Everything's going to be okay. I pray that the Lord will bless you. You've come under his wings, under his protection. Um, and so don't worry about anything, right? And you get a little sense from the story and, and other interactions in the story that there might be a little bit of interest between these two, right? But he's being very gentlemanly. He's being very cordial. He's being very formal, right? And he's, and he's treating her like a daughter, right? So basically he's in the friend zone. Boaz is hanging out in the friend zone, and going, hey, we're going to be friends, right? So this, these kinds of interactions continue throughout the whole barley harvest, the whole seven weeks or so that she's working in these fields. All of their interactions are like this. Boaz coming and saying, listen, my daughter, I'll help you with this, and everything's cool. Uh, gives her food, gives her extra grain. So one day, it's towards the end of the harvest, and Ruth goes back to Naomi, and, you know, she's tired, she's sweaty, she's been working all day in the field. They sit down, and Naomi says this. Look what Naomi says. Naomi says, my daughter, listen to me. Oh, wait. No, that was what Boaz said. Ruth says this. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, she said, my, my daughter, I need to find a home for you where you will be well provided for. I need to find a place of rest, refuge and rest and protection for you. And then she says, now, Boaz, Boaz, whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. Now, hold on right there. She's starting to think, like, maybe this Boaz character could be a nice match for you. And when she says he's a relative of ours, what she's really describing is a relationship in ancient Israel called the, what's called a guardian redeemer. Guardian redeemer is a legal category in, in ancient Israel. And, a, and a, 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 this redeemer, guardian redeemer, is a person that if you get in trouble or your family gets in trouble or something's going on with your family, you can go out to this wealthier, more influential, more powerful member of the family, and they'll step in, they'll intervene in your situation, and they'll help you. And two main ways that they would help is if a person w lost their land, like a person went broke, and they got their house, you know, uh, taken from them, right? And they went upside down, and, and, and they lost their house. A guardian redeemer would be able to step in at any time and say to the person who bought the house or say to the bank or whoever, say, hey, listen, this is my relative. I'm redeeming this property for them. You have to sell it back to me for a fair price. And the, the person who owns the property at that point had to sell it to him. So that was a, a law in ancient Israel. The other thing that a guardian redeemer could do if they were very closely related is that if somebody, if somebody died, if a woman's husband died, and they were related to the woman's husband, then they could come in and they would marry the woman so that she would have, be able to pass on her lineage, so that she would not lose her property, so that she would have 
a home and protection, right? So that's what a guardian redeemer would do. They could step in and intervene on land, and they could step in and intervene on marriage. So Naomi is saying Boaz is actually our our guardian redeemer, and he's a bachelor. He's not married. He might be a really good match for you. So if I could bring the two of you together, Naomi's saying, then not only would you have property, because then he could redeem the property that my husband lost, right? Because Boaz was related to Naomi's husband. Are you following the family tree? You got it, everybody? And, and so you would have the property, and you would have a husband, okay? So she's trying to get, uh, she's trying to set her up. She's trying to get her squared away, all right? Ruth says, you know, that's great, except the problem is the guy always calls me daughter. You know, I've been there seven weeks. Uh, I'm always out in the field sweating. And it's not a lot of romance going on between me and Boaz, right? So Naomi says, I love this. Naomi says, all right, we're going to get creative. Tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. That means he's going to be processing all this grain. They would process it by crunching it up, throwing it in the air, and then all of the chaff, all the stalks and all the little straw would float away with the wind and the grain would fall back down. And she said he's going to be doing that on the threshing floor. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to wash up, put on some nice perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, Take, take off your widow's clothes and your mourning clothes, right? Put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Now you're thinking, what? Right? What? Did you say, Naomi? This is like bold. This is bold, right? This is kind of like, does this seem like a seduction? It kind of feels like a seduction, right? Okay, so it is kind of a seduction, all right? (laughs) I was researching this a lot this week um, and last week. Um, And, you know, you'll hear, like, some people say, well, this was just a practice in the Near East. No, it really wasn't. It wasn't a practice in the Near East. What, What the practice in the Near East was this. When two people wanted to get married, they didn't go out on a date. They didn't go to White Castle, you know, and get all romantic. Um, They had their dads set them up. So dad of the bride and dad of the groom would have a conversation, and they would say, you know, we're going to put these kids together. And and, and when I say kids, I mean these, you know, when you got married, you were like 14 or 15 in in, the first century and, you know, and prior. So that's how they, that's how they, they would arrange marriages. In this case, Boaz's dad is long dead. He died a long time ago. Ruth's dad lives in Moab. He's got no connection with anybody. He's way out there, right? So there's no formula. There's no format. There's no, you know, socially acceptable way for the two of them to get together, right? And here's what Naomi's thinking. Naomi is thinking, like, okay, first of all, every time he sees you, you're, like, out in the field just sweating and picking up stuff behind uh, the harvesters, right? The second thing is he kind of sees you as this person that he's protecting, right? And, and that's good, right? But Boaz, Boaz has been a bachelor for a long time. So we don't, we don't know why. We, we haven't gotten any background on that. We, you know, some have speculated that he was um, a widower. Some speculated that he was divorced. There's no, no indication of that in the story. What we know is that there's a guy who isn't married. Maybe he was super focused on his career. 
right? And he just never got married. Maybe, maybe, you see, he had kind of an interesting past. His mother was also a foreigner. His mother had been a prostitute before she gave her heart to God. So maybe, you know, when he was a teenager, some of the other people that would normally match him with their daughter are like, well, I don't know about, you know, these guys have kind of a spotty history, you know, we're not going to, we don't know. But we know that Boaz, for whatever reason, has been, you know, a bachelor for a long time. So Naomi's going, look, Boaz is not going to make a move. He's just not going to come right out and say, hey, let's get together. So Naomi is thinking about all of this. She's devising all of this plan. She also knows the barley harvest is almost over. Like the opportunities for these two to inter, you know, interconnect or connect with each other is, is very limited. And it's starting, the window is closing. We need to make a move. So Naomi says, okay, here's what you're going to do. Oh, here's the other thing. Naomi knew Boaz. She knew that Boaz was not going to, if she instructs Ruth to do this, she's confident that Boaz is not going to jeopardize Ruth's honor, her reputation, her integrity. So she's, it's a calculated risk, right? Go and do this. This will get his attention. Um, and at the same time, you're not going to put yourself in peril. That's what Naomi does. And she says, all right, I want you to go and do this. Now, what, here's the one I want to focus on. Because what's interesting is Ruth's response to this. She gets this, she gets this very interesting advice from her mother-in-law, right? Here's, what, here's, what she, here's how she responds. She says, I will do whatever you say. Okay. Okay, Naomi, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do whatever you say. Let, let me just tell you, there's one piece of what it means to surrender your relationship to God, and it's point number one, and that is surrendering your relationship to God means that we surrender by seeking and following good counsel. Now, note that, note that it wasn't another single woman that was telling Ruth what to do here. It was Naomi. Naomi, she had seen Naomi's life. She had seen the fruit of her life. She had seen the way she treated her son. She had seen that she was a woman of integrity. She had taken probably advice from her before. They, she loved Naomi. Naomi loved her. They had been together for years. And so when Naomi said, look, I know this might sound strange, but here's what I want you to do. Ruth said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. A lot of times in our relationships and in our relationship status, we need to follow the, 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 the heed principle, right? So we not only hear it, it's a hear and heed. We hear the advice and then we heed the advice. Because a lot of times, folks will give you really sound input about relationships, and we don't do it. We just don't do it. And, you know, I've been guilty of not following advice when I should have. Uh, I've been guilty of, I don't know if guilt is the right word. I've given a lot of advice that people don't follow. I don't know why. I always walk away. I go, man, all they had to do was just, you know. But we had a, I, when I was a teenager one time, I lived in, for a summer, I lived in Caldwell, Idaho. And my uh, cousin let me borrow his pickup truck. And I was like 16, 17 maybe. And we would drive around out there in Caldwell, Idaho. Caldwell, Idaho is like, there's nothing out there. And one day we were leaving church, my my uncle's church. He's a pastor out there. And uh, my buddy Jeff and I were getting ready to head out who knows where. And we're in in this pickup truck, and it's got a roll bar. I should give you a clue as to where this story's going. Um, we were in this pickup truck, and a couple of family in the church had asked us to take their kids home. And I had taken them home from church a, couple, a few times. 
And so we said, sure. And this is like a little pickup truck, you know, it's just one little pickup in the front, you know, one seat. So the kids got in the back. That's how people roll in Caldwell, Idaho. They just get in the back of a pickup truck and they just ride that way. The kids are in the back of this pickup truck and my, we're driving out of the church parking lot and I hear somebody saying, Brent, Brent, it's my Aunt Ruby. Stop the car. So I stopped the car. She doesn't really talk like that <laughs> at all, actually. I don't know why. Um, and she comes running up to the kids and she's like, you kids get in the front of that truck. And they're like, oh, Brent always lets us ride in the back of the pickup truck. And she's like, I said you get in the front of that truck. That's not how she talks either. I cannot do my Aunt Ruby's accent. Anyway, so I'm like, okay. And so the kids get in the front of the truck. Now the front of the truck is packed. This is packed. We pull out of the church. We pull onto the highway. We're half a mile from the church. Uh, Like a sheepdog runs out in front of us. I try to swerve and miss the sheepdog. And I don't know why, but the truck just decides like, ba-boom, this is when we're going to start flipping. And we just started flipping on the highway. We landed back on our feet, on our wheels. The, the car is just, the truck is crunched in everywhere. There's a roll bar, so it's like not crunched in right on our heads. But the doors are all crunched. The, do- the windows are about this big. We, fortunately, we both had our windows down. Um, and I thought, you know, we're all sitting there. The kids are now in the floorboard crying. This guy, Jeff, is over here. He's got road burn on his forearm because he was sitting like this on the window. I've got road burn over here. I thought the car was going to, I thought the truck was going to blow up. So I grabbed the kids and I start shoving them out the window. And then I crawl out the window. He crawls out that window. And we're all standing there and we're like, oh my, we're okay. There were like no broken bones. There were no cuts. There were no bruises. There was no, nothing. But for weeks, weeks, I kept thinking, what if I had not taken my Aunt Ruby's advice? What if I had left those kids in the back of the truck? How devastating would that have been on their family's life, on them, on everybody involved? It would, have, it would have been a game changer, right? We can sometimes avert a lot of danger and a lot of problems in relationships and a lot of challenges and a lot of heartbreak and a lot of difficulty if we will take the time to reach out and say, hey, I, I could use some help here. I could use a little bit of advice. I'm not exactly sure what to do, whether you're single or married or in a relationship or not in a relationship. Reach out to somebody who's been down the path, who you can trust, who's, who's reading the map of the Scripture and who's living it, and ask them. Get some help. We, have, we, have, we support a group called Avenues Counseling here. Go to Avenues or go to some, some other group and just reach out for some help. We have people here that will help you. We have people here that will talk with you. There's no shame. Everybody's, everybody, the, the best thing that Rebecca and I ever did before we got married, we went to a relationship counseling, like multi-week counseling thing, and we went to classes, and, you know, and we did it because we're like, man, we don't even know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. And so we got a lot of help, and it's been very helpful all these years. So point number one is reach out, get some help. We surrender by seeking and following good counsel. Amen? All right, that's point number one. We have 14 more points to go, so let me get going here. Um. So, here's what happens. So she gives her this advice. Go do this. And then here's what happens. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, and he was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. So he'd been, you know, doing this, all this grain, and a lot of times they would sleep out by the grain pile just to make sure somebody didn't come steal the grain. So Boaz goes over, and he lays down by the grain. It's quiet. He falls asleep. 
Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. She did exactly what Naomi said. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he says, who are you? And she said, I am your servant, Ruth. And she said, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. I want to pause for one second. You see this phrase, the, the, the corner of your garment? Remember, at, you know, uh, a, a few minutes ago when he said, I pray that the God that you, you know, ha- have come under his supervision, I pray that he will cover you with his wings. Remember that? That Hebrew word that he used in that moment is kanaf. It can mean wing. It can mean garment. It can mean some kind of extremity. She turns around and says the same thing to him. She said, yeah, you know that blessing that you prayed on me that God would cover me and protect me and enter into covenant with me? I'm asking you to be the one who does that. I'm asking God to use you to be my guardian redeemer. I'm asking God to have you enter into a covenant with me and become my husband. I'm asking you to marry me. Boaz had a lot of choices right here. A lot of things that he could do. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's influential. It's the middle of the night. He's had some food. He's had some wine. He's got a lot of choices that he could do. He, he could take advantage of this situation, right? She's from a foreign country. She came to him. You know, he could justify almost anything that he did here. Listen what he does. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. And now, my daughter, he says, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. I will be your guardian redeemer for you. And I think at that point, she's like, okay, you can stop calling me daughter right now. Okay, we're done. With, we're just, let's just retire the daughter business. Because I just came and uncovered your feet and proposed marriage. And now it's awkward. So, so, so he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And the thing I love about Boaz is not only did Ruth surrender, Boaz surrendered. Boaz surrendered by delaying his desire in order to reap a greater reward. He could have, got, he could have said, you know what, I don't want a wife, but I'll make you my mistress. He could have done a whole host of things in this moment, and she would have had no recourse. He delayed his desire in order to reap a greater reward and thereby surrendered his relationship to God. Do you understand? We... we a lot of times, you know, people think of the Bible as being like, you know what, delay gratification and, you know, indefinitely, right? That's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible is teaching you if you can, if you can delay some of those desires and needs and wants now, the outcome of that is going to be far better for you, right? So don't settle for Mr. Right Now, right, or Mrs. Right Now when you really want Mr. or Mrs. Right. You see what I mean? So, uh, and we live in a world of instant gratification. I, I've talked to you about this before. Remember when I talked to you about the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? Anybody remember that? This is a great study. It never gets old. What happened in this experiment in the 70s? They took like 600 kids, about four years old, and what they would do is they would, they would go into a room, and they would put a marshmallow on a plate, the kids in the room all by themselves. They put a marshmallow on a plate, and, and you can get this on YouTube. You can go and download it. It's hilarious. Um, (laughs) Because, so you tell the kids, they say, look, you can either eat this marshmallow, or I'm going to leave the room, and when I come back, if you don't eat the marshmallow, I'm going to give you two marshmallows. 
And what they're trying to do is gauge whether or not these kids can delay their desire, delay their gratification. And so they go, okay, here you go, boom, marshmallow, then they leave. And then they videotape the kids. And, of course, the kids are going, ugh. I mean, what, I mean, like some kids are smelling it. Some kids are, like, licking the marshmallow. They're like, one kid, like, picks it up and he's kissing it. <laughs> kissing the marshmallow. Um, you know, it's like, how do you not eat this marshmallow? Two-thirds of the kids eat the marshmallow within 15 minutes. Two-thirds of them. They're like, like uh, about a third of them ate it as soon as the person walked out of the door. They're like, okay, that sounds good. Door closed. Bang, and it's in their mouth. It's over. Um, the other third of them waited a little bit. But only one-third of them were able to delay and, and wait, and then, you know, a person came back in, and, of course, they got two marshmallows. The researchers went back years later. Here's what they found. They found, overwhelmingly, that the kids that had learned to delay gratification, to delay their desire, they had higher SAT scores, they had lower levels of substance abuse, they had lower likelihood of obesity, they had better responses to stress, they had better social skills than those hadn't learned to delay their desire. Now, a lot of the kids that had eaten it right away, they got a little bit older, and they started to learn that, and it was reflected in their life. Because it's not just a relationship principle, it's a life principle. That when we learn to delay our desire and delay our need for immediate gratification, we will end up with something better down the path than the thing that we're trying to get a hold of right now. And that is just a universal truth in life. So I want to just say to you, in this world of instant gratification, let me challenge you and encourage you. Don't, don't think that the Bible wants you to just be, you know, it's not, it's not a, com- a cosmic killjoy. God's not trying to make you sad. He's not br- trying to bring you down. He's not trying to, de- you know, deprive you. He's trying to enrich you and fulfill you and bring you more than you could have anticipated or expected by having you hold off and delay your desire for something greater. That's surrender. Amen? Now, I don't want you to get the idea that surrender then is passivity because it's not. Surrender is not passivity. Just delaying your desire does not mean that you're being passive, right? In fact, I'll tell you real quickly this part. Uh, Boaz, that night when he was talking to Ruth, he said, look, I will be your guardian redeemer, but here's the problem. Um, you can hold off on that one. I'm, I'm going to hold off one second, Don. Uh, he said, here's the problem. If uh, I, I'll, I'll be your guardian redeemer, but there's somebody that's in line before me. There's actually a closer relative who has rights before me, okay? And I can't just step in and be the guardian redeemer because he's more closely related to, a, to your father-in-law, your deceased father-in-law, than I am. So he's got first dibs, okay? But I'm going to do my best, right? And then the next day, I love what Boaz does. Here's what he does. He, he goes out. You can put that up now. Um, he goes out. He takes 10 of the elders from the town, and he gets all these people around him, a bunch of folks. And he says, all right, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the other guardian redeemer, this is the guy that's more closely related to Elimelech. He brings him over. He says, hey, listen, man, Naomi, who has come back. um, Let's see. I lost you there. He says, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, uh, she's selling that piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And he says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not redeem it, he said, tell me, so I will know, because no one has the right to do it except you, and then I'm the next in line. Now, hold on right there. Stay right there. So he hasn't mentioned, he hasn't mentioned uh, Ruth yet. 
He's just talking about the land. He's like, look, man, you can get a nice piece of property for very cheap uh, because, you know, you're the guardian redeemer. So if you want it, you know, go ahead and get it, right? And the guardian redeemer says, man, that's a great deal. Look what he says. He says, okay, next slide. I will redeem it, he said. Okay, I'll do it. So we're reading the story. We're going, wait a minute, Boaz. What kind of a weird pitch was that? Like, I thought you liked Ruth, and why are you doing this, right? Then Boaz does this. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy it, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, guardian redeemer, when you buy this property uh, from Naomi, you also require, acquire Ruth, the Moabite. And so he's not saying you also acquire Ruth, this beautiful young woman who is working in my field. He's like, it's this foreign woman. Um, she is the uh, widow of the deceased. He keeps saying dead man. He keeps saying, like, do you see this? He's like, this, she's a Moabite. She's the dead man's widow. And you would have to buy her. You would have to acquire her to maintain the names of the dead with this property. In other words, like, there's a piece of property, but there is this ball and chain hook to it. And I just don't think you want that. Do you? Right? And the guardian redeemer then in verse 6, next slide, he says, at this, the guardian redeemer said, oh, okay, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. He's like, look, I have a wife. I have kids. I can't get into whatever crazy business you're talking about. Um, it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And Boaz, right, he brought in the 10 elders for this conversation. Look what he does. Next line. He says, then Boaz announces to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife. It's like, boom, done. Witnesses, everybody's done. We're all good here. Okay, thank you. It's not passivity, man. Sometimes, you know, there's got to be some creativity. Sometimes there's got to be some activity. Sometimes you got to take steps. Sometimes you have to be, you know, sort of proactive. If you're in a relationship, that may mean, you know, you want to take your wife to the Galleria sometime, right, and go to the food court. I don't know. You know, no, you, sometimes you got to do some things in a relationship to make the relationship work. You can't pull back and be like, well, Lord, just bless this relationship. Now, where's my remote? You know, it's like that's, you know, that's not going to cut it. Sometimes you got to take some steps, and if you're single, too, sometimes you just put yourself in situations that are a little bit awkward, a little bit uncomfortable, I had a pastor, I was at a church when I was a, right when I became a Christian, I was the youngest person at this church by about 40 years. I was just me and some older folks. And I loved this church, and the pastor was amazing. But there was one other young person, and it was a a woman in her maybe 20s or 30s, and she sat about two rows in front of me. And every, you know, week, you know, we're at church, and uh, at the end of church, you'd walk out, and the pastor would shake everybody's hand, like as you're going out. Shake everybody's hand and be like, hey, thanks for coming, bless you, and all this kind of stuff. How you doing? And uh, so shake everybody's hand, and uh, the, the young lady walks out, and she walks out, and then a couple other people walk out, and then I walk out, and he takes my hand, and he goes, her name is Jennifer. And I was like, thank you, pastor. Um, it turned out that she was engaged and, and, you know, didn't work out. And I'm really glad, by the way, really glad. But the point is, sometimes you've got, you've got to be active in your relationship approach, both in a relationship and when you're not yet in a relationship. Amen? Okay. Verse 4. We're, clo- we're getting close here. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. Then he made love to her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth 
to a son. That's point number four. Surrender brings unmerited blessings. The arc of this story is beautiful because it starts with the death of a husband and it ends with the birth of a baby. And it's because at the beginning of the story, somebody surrendered. Somebody said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you stay, I will stay. Somebody surrendered their relationship status to God, and the result of that was unmerited blessing. Um, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he says, the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. We think of surrender as defeat. We think of surrender as, you know, giving up. Surrender, when it, in a spiritual sense, when we surrender to God, it's the ultimate victory. It's the ultimate opportunity for triumph. And the ultimate example of that is Christ himself, who his greatest moment, his greatest achievement in history was when he surrendered his body to the cross, to death, hell, and the grave, and gave himself as the guardian redeemer for you and for me. I want to just end this whole story here. I know we're running long, but uh, at the very end of the story, there's this interesting little piece that's tacked on, and it's not really part of the story and you kind of wonder what it's about. Let me read you just the very, very end there. Verse, uh, verses 18, it says, This then, it's just a genealogy, genealogy is the family line of, of Perez. It says, this is at the very end of the story. The story's over. Baby born. And then it says, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadad. Aminadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So this family, you know, that submitted their relationship to God, gave birth, were the ancestors of King David. Then you flip a few chapters forward into the New Testament. You go to Matthew chapter 1. It continues the genealogy. It says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Last point. Surrender leads to the fulfillment of your purpose. Surrender leads to the ultimate fulfillment of your purpose. They could not have known, Boaz and Ruth could not have known that by submitting their relationships, submitting their lives to God in the way that they did, that the ultimate result from that is that their ancestry would give birth to Jesus, the guardian redeemer of the world the guardian redeemer who gave his life for you and for me. But our ultimate purpose, our ultimate purpose comes when we're willing and able to surrender our lives to God. Surrender your heart, surrender your relationship to God and let him bless you in generous and surprising ways. There's a little call to action in your bulletin. I'm just going to give it to you really quick and we're going to close. Number one, consciously surrender your relationship status to God. Just be willing to say, Lord, I, I need your help in my relationship, in my status. I need your help. Number two, commit to seeking good counsel for your relationship. Reach out. Get help. I mean it. Seriously. It's so valuable and so important. And number three, commit to live in accordance with God's relationship plan. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're not going to nail it every time. But when you get off track, be willing to put yourself back on track. Be willing to reach out and ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength to get back on track and let him bless you in generous and surprising ways. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and we just ask that you would be with each and every person here in this room. We ask that each and every person here today would be blessed by your word. We pray, Lord God, that each and every person would experience your love and experience you as their guardian redeemer. We ask, Lord, that you would come into our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would empower us and strengthen us to live out the lives you've called us to live. Give us your strength today. Give us your love today. Give us your hope today, your peace today. Father, we come before you with open hearts. With open hearts, we come before you and we ask you to bless us. We ask you to bless us and give us strength to be able to do what you've called us to do, that we might be a light to others, that we might be a guardian redeemer to someone else through you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.